So sometimes things happen quickly, sometimes they don't. And you'll probably be one of those persons, you might be in a place in your life where you're going, it's just taking forever. And I had that kind of experience this last week. Um, I had told you about my Verizon experience, right? Some of you remember, and I didn't act really um, the way I should have in that whole situation. But on Wednesday of this last week, so it's last Sunday, the whole story I told you about um, a week ago. On Wednesday of this last week, I clocked my 10th hour on the phone seeking to get a replacement phone from my father. And finally, Ave Latrate Corbett, a customer advocate rep with Verizon based out of the South Carolina Verizon call center, who now, by the way, is my best friend, um, <laughs> stuck with me and helped me secure my father's replacement phone and I received it on Thursday at 10.30 a.m. And at one point throughout the process, I thanked her and she just said, I am only doing what I'd want someone else to do for me. And I thought, those sound like words we've heard before, doing to others as you would want them to do to you. And when I shared about my father's situation to Herb, that he's wheelchair-bound, that he's at the hospice, and he had lost his wife of 60 years, and my dad, whenever I say that, 60-plus years, he'll look at me and go, 63. Um, And now he's dealing with the onset of dementia. She encouraged me with her own story. She said, you know, my mom had dementia a number of years ago. And she began to only remember at a certain point good memories. And often she would call my daughter by name. And I learned it's better not to correct her in those situations, but just let her go with the memory. And so I did. And one time she thought I was her mother, and she was this little girl, and this was years ago. And she was so excited, as this little girl, she said, please, could we pick cotton together? Could we go out and pick cotton together? Understand, this is a black lady. Somehow she said picking cotton was a good memory for her, and she was recalling something she had done long ago with her parents and then her grandparents. And I always tried to help her do those things she wanted to do, but I had no idea, she told me over the phone, how to find any place where I could go pick cotton with her. And I'm on the phone listening to Ave, and I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding, as I'm having my commentaries in front of me, and I have my Bible open, and I'm prepared to write about Paul's request to Philemon that he would free his slave Onesimus. And I have Ave on the phone, talking with someone whose mother's grandmother and grandparents were the first generation to taste such freedom from slavery in the United States. And in moments, I'd be gathering my thoughts together on what I'd be saying here about Philemon. And it it just hit me again as I was preparing this message that it's been nearly 1,900 years. It took 1,900 years to establish a law in in Western civilization that Paul appealed to in a little letter. And I thought, why do some things take so long to change? And is it possible, can you speed this process up Are there some paths we can take to increase the speed of change? Whether it be in our own lives or whether we be in relationship to someone else. And even though this one little page letter of 335 words in the Greek, 25 verses in your Bible, requests Paul 
Paul requests Philemon to set Onesimus free, that's still not the main point of this letter. In fact, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about a lot of lessons from Philemon, and they're basically more the consequences of the primary message of Paul's letter. And I thought we'd wait to this last week, you know, five weeks on Philemon, that we'd get to the, the main point of this letter. You see, a lot of times we talk about what I call the entailments, not entitlements, but entailments, the things that follow, the implications of a truth. And what we've been talking about, even in this, is the implications. And, and we've talked about a number of the implications. We took this look at this little letter, 335 words, and we talked about the power of practically nothing. We, we made the point in the verse, first message, small can be very powerful. The little things you do, the smile that you give to someone, though you may not think it's too important, can deeply impact someone. And then we talked about blessing others where you live because Paul begins his letter and he doesn't say I'm a prisoner to Rome, which you would kind of think because he's sitting in a Roman jail. He's a prisoner to Jesus. And as a result of being a prisoner to Jesus, Paul had this ability not to see himself just chained to this guard 24-7, but he saw himself really chained to Jesus and what Jesus wanted to do through him in those circumstances so that in any circumstances he could allow God to bless him and bless others through it. And we looked at the significance of a name. Onesimus means you, so that was the name he was given, but he never could quite live up to that name until one day, after he had run away, and he had so run away from the implications of his name, he encountered a man named Paul who in that explained to him that through Jesus he could be given the name that God had always intended him to live into. Not on what he could do, but on the basis of what Jesus did for him. And as a result of the grace and the power of God, could begin to experience deep within the change that would bring about this new name. No longer a slave, but understanding he is in essence a son. No longer a servant, but now a brother. A part of the family of God. And then last week we talked about this whole idea of of tough talks, because this whole letter is really just Paul's ability to sit down and, and, and to give a tough talk. One of those crucial conversations where you present this as persuasively and tactful as possible, yet never in that process do you force someone's will. You request and allow for them to respond out of their heart. If these are all implications the result over time that begin to make themselves known. If what's the essential truth is what what he writes Philemon about, then and, and we've looked at kind of what over time becomes true, then what is this letter all about? And so to grasp it, what I want to do is, if you look in your, it it should be in the pew, if you came in, someone said to me, handouts today. Um, Grab that handout, if you would, and pass it down. Because I need you to have that in your hand, because I'm going to take a moment to kind of teach, okay? So I'm going to really ask if you could kind of hang with me to get this point, because it will help you understand the essential message that Paul is writing to Philemon about, okay? So if you've got the handout for a moment, could you, don't look at it, just for a moment, okay? I'm going to do like the teacher said, you know, you got your test, you know, don't look at it, turn it over. 
I'd like you to do that for a moment because what I want to explain to you is something that's found throughout ancient literature and it's often found often throughout the New Testament. And it's a, and it's a little kind of literary device. It's called chiasm. And it comes from the Greek word chiasm, which is beginning not with a C-H the way we would spell it. We spell it C-H-I-A-S-M. They would spell it with an X, key. And, and it's this idea, the X, that, that you would have a series of thoughts that you would present that would begin to move towards the center and then it would move back out again. They call it an inverted parallelism. And you have to remember this. The reason they would do these kind of literary devices wasn't just because they wanted to be poetically um, beautiful in their writing. They would do many of these things because it's only been for the last 500 years since we've had the printing press that people are actually readers and that we can store knowledge in print. For years and years and years, people would transmit information through, it was an oral culture, and you would tell one person to tell another person. And the reason they would use devices like chiasm is because it would help them, in a sense, remember what had been said. And so I'll give you a very simple chiastic structure. It usually goes something like A, B, C, B, A. Or A-B-B-A. It's that kind of thing. And, and, and an example would be this little sentence, winners never quit and therefore perseverance is the key to success because quitters never win. You see what's going on there? If you look at A, it's about winners and A win. B quit and B quitters. And the central thought in the very middle there is what you're supposed to take away. And this would be a way to help them to memorize. And therefore perseverance is the key to success. In other words, a chiastic structure is a literary device in which words, clauses, or themes are laid out and then repeated in an inverted order, creating a A, A, B, C, B, A kind of pattern, or what they call a crossing effect, like the letter X in the word chiasmus in the Greek. In the center position in this chiastic literary structure indicates the point of emphasis. So by centering the thought of the passage, the structure shows the emphasis of the whole. Now, what I want to show you, if you look now at your sheets, is the brilliance of Paul. This whole letter that Paul wrote was so well thought out. It, people and scholars will tell you it's incredible how tactful, and you can go through it, and you can look at it so many different ways, but what I want to share with you is this chiastic structure. And you may say, well, you know, really, you, you know, did you really get this out of this? I, I was reading this uh, on my uh, sabbatical. One of the problems with sabbatical is I read a lot. But this, um, this is a great book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Kenneth Bailey, he just passed away not too long ago. And he goes through, and he goes through many of the Gospels. And many of the Gospels, especially as Jesus was giving them in the Aramaic, were set up in a chiastic structure. When he would give a story, it had a chiastic structure to it. It's a very common thing that was done. So if you look at this, here's the brilliance of Paul. You can see, if you look at A, he begins and he says, Paul's imprisonment. And it's the backdrop to the epistle, verses 1 through 3. And if you go down to the A at the bottom, you see Paul's imprisonment is the backdrop to the epistle. You can see where he begins it and he ends it that way. Then he says Paul's prayer for Philemon, verse 4b. And then he goes to B, Philemon's prayer for Paul. C, 
Philemon's love, faithfulness, and hospitality, verses 5 through 7 is about that hospitality. See Paul's request for hospitality of Philemon for himself in verse 22. Now you have to understand, we're looking at the verses here and go, why weren't they verse by verse? Because these verses were attached many years later. This was a letter without any kind of verse numbers to them. Okay, does that make sense? And so what he does is he goes through, D, Paul's refrain, refrains using his apostolic authority, verse 8. D, Paul does not ask for obedience, but knows Philemon will do more than he asks, verse 21. And he goes on like that till you get to the center, J. Here's the center of the message. This is what Paul has been moving towards, and when he gets there, then he'll move back away. In the center of the message is this. Paul will not require Philemon to take Onesimus back, verse 14. Perhaps Onesimus left Philemon so that he could take him back forever. And that's the verse that you have in verse Philemon. If you look at that verse in verses 14 and 15, it gets to the very middle and he says, but I did not do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. And then he moves into it, no longer a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. There's a kind of irony in this story, in the sense that Onesimus had to run away and leave Philemon in order to return and become his spiritual brother. This change in relationship between these two individuals because of their relationship with Jesus is the central reason Paul is writing this letter. It's all about this incredible change that takes place the day that Jesus became their Lord and Savior. And when he became their Lord and Savior and they became a part of the family of God, everything changed deep within And eventually, over time, the implications of what happened in their heart would begin to work itself out. And Paul presents Philemon with the choice. It's not primarily to free Onesimus. It's not so much about slavery. It's far deeper than that. It is to see Onesimus as his brother in Christ. And according to God, providentially working over time and through time, he was working in this particular situation on their behalf. See, freeing Onesimus is the result and implication of this much deeper reality. And here's the kicker of it all. Here's what's really interesting. Freeing Onesimus is really the easiest part for Philemon. It may have some difficulties with others around him, but it's the easiest part to do that. The greater, greater work in all of this is what God has to do deep in the Philemon's heart. He could let him go, but can he let him go in his heart? Can he give him forgiveness? Can they move into a restored relationship and through trust over time, develop the relationships no longer as just a slave and owner, but becoming brothers to one another? See, there's a much greater work than merely releasing a slave in this passage of Scripture. There is a work of God through Christ's life and his death and his resurrection, which is being worked into our hearts and life over time, which over time has huge consequences. Now, Jesus has worked in your life. 
And as you begin to open your heart and your, 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 your life to him, he begins to bring changes. Some can be immediate changes. David testified to an immediate sense of forgiveness that began to just pour into his heart. For some of you, it is not necessarily so immediate as it is the Spirit of God convicts you and you have to then obey and respond. And for some, that takes time. Some of the things within our hearts and our lives have been have been developed when we were younger and their habits that over time take the work of God in our heart so that over time we become the kind of person that God calls us to be. Over the past few months as I have studied and, and, and I've read this and I've reflected and I've prayed over this little letter, I have been struck with how deep the message of Jesus goes. I'm amazed that when a person is truly in a real and authentic and honestly growing relationship with Jesus, it penetrates to the core of our being, into our intentions, into our thoughts, and eventually comes out in our words and our actions. A few weeks back, as I was just writing in my journal, taking time to be alone with the Lord, and I was thinking even a little bit about this message, here's some words I wrote. I wrote these words. As I was preparing and thinking through the future messages, I became aware with the depths of Paul's words to Philemon on a level I hadn't understood before. That's one of the great things about studying scripture over a period of time. As you continue to do it and go deeper, God goes deeper with you. And so I I continue to write. He appealed to Philemon to set Onesimus free. In actuality, changing the structure of an economy based on slavery is difficult and can take time Yet it's not what is the most difficult thing to do. We experienced that in our country from the days of its inception. We declared in our Declaration of Independence that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator within certain unalienable rights. We wrote that in our, back in the 1700s. And our Constitution, which is the law of the land, says, quote, It secures the blessing of liberty to be enjoyed not only by the first generation, but for, as it says, all our posterity. And beyond this, we added ten amendments, known collectively as Bill of Rights. I want to make sure you're awake. And after, they offer actually specific protection of individual liberty and justice. It's our heritage, this is our law. You know what's really interesting, though, when it was drafted? It was drafted by, by founders like men like Jefferson and Madison, and who, as they wrote these very words, they also held men, women, and children as property as slaves. There were a few, though, who, you know, like founders like Washington, who had slaves, because it was a slave economy, who actually, upon his will and death, set them all free. There were people like Hamilton, who from the very beginning was one who said there should be no slaves. You know, what I find is interesting is that when I think about this, and you think about the aspiration, desire to see this happen, even creating a law to make this happen, changing an economy and a culture through laws, even though it's difficult, isn't the hardest thing. And we know that it may take time. We saw it in our own country. Sometimes change comes slowly. And the seed of truth takes centuries to grow and flower into its intended fruit. 
In the time that this was written, Paul was aware that this message of Christ would take time to penetrate and saturate the culture. And you may wonder why the writers of the New Testament didn't push this kind of agenda. You would think maybe when the whole Christian faith was beginning and they, they were beginning their own, own little political, let's say their own little political party, which was never a political party, but let's just say they had, instead of a Democratic convention, national convention, a Republican national convention, can you imagine them getting together and having the Christian national convention? Right? And you would imagine on their planks, their planks would be some pretty important things because in that time, in that day, Rome was notorious and so was that world for, for aborting babies. Rome and the world, you know, most of the people were slaves. That's how the economy was supported. And there was all kinds of difficulties and other human rights issues. You would imagine that if they had the Christian National Convention, they would come together and, and the top major planks that they would push politically would be what? Abolish slavery. Yet they didn't. They didn't push for the implications. They pushed for the heart of the gospel. Because they believed when you move into the heart of the gospel, and it gets into the heart of individuals, and it gets into the hearts of individuals in a society, and it gets into that society, it begins to impact the culture. Chuck Swindoll says it this way, and I think he has a good answer to this. Had Christianity fueled the fires of a slave rebellion, the strong Roman army would have crushed the uprising with savage and tragic results, and Christianity would have been forever branded as a subversive and revolutionary group of people. Christianity was never meant to advance by physical violence or prevail through the use of the sword. It did not interfere or attempt to interfere with the established order. The emphasis of the Christian message was aimed at individuals and not at institutions. And as the seeds planted within the hearts of these individuals took root and grew, Swindoll says, entire cultures over time were transformed. It took years for the seed of the gospel to penetrate the heart of our culture. Until finally there were people like Wilberforce in England and Lincoln in our own country, so that eventually the agricultural south, which was built on the slave economy, dependent on that kind of labor, it was finally a 13th Amendment called the Emancipation of Proclamation in 1863 that with the stroke of a pen by the will of a group of people in government, the status of more than three million enslaved people moved from slave to free. To change a culture and economy takes time. It begins with an aspirational desire, then a declaration where we called for independence, a constitution, and then finally a proclamation until what was once legal now becomes illegal. And yet, folks, I want to share with you, that isn't the heart of this message. That is one of the implications that comes from the heart that is touched by the heart of God. And changing a law is relatively easy, really, in comparison to the changing of a heart. Setting Onesimus free was really rather easy. Jesus said it this way about God. He could come and heal someone like this. 
Physical healing is not a problem. But what did he say was tough? Forgiveness. Back to my journal. The law can curtail, can curtail certain behaviors, but it cannot change attitudes. It can impact, ex, impact external actions, but it does not touch internal mindsets. The law can rule by force and prevent, but it cannot rule by love from within and promote eyes that see others with honor and dignity as true brothers and sisters. This requires more than an amendment to a constitution. It requires a work of God in the heart. This was ultimately what Paul was after. This was what God in Christ Jesus was after. Hearts amended by his love. Not mere laws written by man and monitored by force, but hearts written by God and ruled by the force of his love. And this is who we're to become. It reaches down into the the deepest part of us. It reaches down into, even though we have laws and set up laws, and we've done this since the 1860s, we also can look around and you can see all kinds of systemic racism, hatred, a disdain for authority. I think about our world today. Laws might make it illegal, But it doesn't move the heart. Laws might by force keep you from doing something because of a fear of punishment. But God came to place his spirit, his heart in our heart so that from within we would be moved by love. And then from within, instead of promoting this kind of stuff by a law, it would be promoted by the law of love that would rule our hearts so that we would see people the way that he wants to see people because of the change that's happened in us. You and I are brothers and sisters. We are part of a family. And we are even that way, not just in this church, but as we look at all around us, all humanity has been made by God in this sense that we see them as the image of God created by him. Folks, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter or whatever life you want people to know matters, the law only addresses the outside. The Spirit of God in a humble heart transforms a Philemon and an Onesimus and a Paul and changes the relationship. So there's honor. And respect. Sometime God providentially must wait before he can finalize the change that's needed. The change began the first day the gospel was preached. And we are now one in Christ. Yet the fulfillment of this actual relational change didn't occur until much later as a result of God's providential hand working in this person's life. So also the deep changes God initiates may take years before it's realized and fulfilled. So I just want to share in these closing moments, what do we do in the meantime? How is it possible, if it's true that small can be powerful, little things can make a difference, is it possible that little you and me, where we live, where we work, where we touch the lives of others, can make a big difference? Yes.
Okay, that's the answer to the question. It is. But let me just, I'm going to share with you, I had a number of things, I'm going to share with you four things, just four simple things that I think are really important to bring about quicker change in your own heart, specifically around these areas where we um, may be uh, finding someone tough to love. It can be an Onesimus coming back to you and you're the Philemon. It can be an Onesimus coming back to the Philemon. Here's four things I just want to share with you. The first is this, and, and I believe these take humility and hunger. You have to have a heart that says, Jesus, I want you more than anything, and I want you to create me. I, you, you really have to live our mission, and that is, Jesus, what's my next step to know you more intimately, follow you more closely, and allow you to become, for me to become more like you. If you are hungry for that, here's some things I think that are important you can do. One is to know your own heart. Be willing to admit your own unconscious prejudices. Be willing to say, God, like David would say in a prayer, you know my heart, you know, show me the things in my heart. Are there some biases? Are there some things? Do I look at others as a other and, and separate myself from them? My eldest daughter a few years ago asked me, she said, Dad, do you think you have any racial prejudices? And... Um, and I said, you know, honestly, Kelsey, no, I, I don't really think I do. And she said, and she was actually taking a graduate program and had done some of this work, and she said, well, would you be willing to take a test that measures a person's unconscious racial bias? <laughs> well, of course, Kelsey, I probably wouldn't. Um, <laughs> she was asking me the question, do you want to know your heart? And I said, okay. I'll take the test, and I took it. And I saw all kinds of things that I just didn't normally see. I was amazed that it measured some prejudices and some biases. Most likely things that, that, had, that had become a part of me because I grew up in a culture and I grew up with an understanding and, and I grew up with a systemic sense of, of racial prejudice. You all grow up in your own culture. This may not be about racism. It may be chauvinism or sexism. It it may be the way that you look at uh, someone who's from a different country. But but are you willing to know your heart? Are you willing to say, God, I humbly, with hunger in my heart, come before you and say, begin to expose those things. Help me see them. There's another thing that I think you can do. if If you're really serious about doing this, is you need to watch your talk. You mean, what do you mean watch your talk? Pay attention to what you say. Jesus said it in Matthew 12, 34. He said, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's basically saying you will leak from your mouth, both in your tone and in your words, those, unbi- those biased, those prejudices, those things that you may not even be seeing or aware of consciously. So now I have to take one of my notes out because I didn't put it in correctly. Okay. Let me share with you another one. If it is um, this idea where you know your heart and then you kind of watch your talk, let me share with you one other that I think is really important. It's make others human. Think about it for a second. Who is the other in your life? Whether it's a law officer or a person of different color or a Muslim or someone who is gay, a feminist, whoever the other is, 
make a commitment to get to know the other. Spend some time with that person. Seek to understand them, know their history, their thought process, their fears. Last Tuesday night at the National Night Out, um, we had some 70 people in our backyard doing our backyard picnic for our area, community around us. And besides our neighbors, we invited the police and some firemen and our mayor. But what was really interesting, at one point, I, I started talking with an officer, a law officer, Lisa. And I just, you know, I've heard all the stuff going on. It's been out there, but it's not become human to me. And I asked her, and she actually knows Eric Fadden in our church. And I asked her, I said, so what's it been like? And she, she got, I, I couldn't believe how impacted she was. Well, she said, it's been horrible these last, this last year or so. In fact, it just continues to get that way. The lack of respect for authority and, and, and the things that are done. And I thought that, and I thought to myself, you know, whether it's authority, whether it's blacks, whatever, I mean, all of them, we, it's not a time to take sides. It's a time to begin to say, God, would you begin to work in our hearts and our lives? And one of the ways, if you're having struggles with someone who's an other in your life, I encourage you, make them human. Get to know them. Don't leave it out there and make judgments. Just talking to a police officer put a put a face to all the news I had heard, and the other became human. And then, and then the fourth thing is this, feel their pain. That's exactly what Jesus did. He entered the world. He became one of us and firsthand felt our pain. It says in Hebrews that he learned obedience from what he suffered. Here's God, the Most High, coming into this world to suffer, learning obedience through it. We have a high priest in Jesus who has been tempted in every way. Jesus identified with the otherness of us. It's the very reason Jesus, when he was belittled and ridiculed by the religious leaders of the day, they would mutter things under their breath and say, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And more than that, they would say things like he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, of sinners. He hangs out with the others. And yet Jesus came and took on all of that and felt yours and my, my pain. So for the past two years, and I honestly didn't start out this way, I started reading all kinds of books around um, the Civil War. I just started, and then for some reason it led to me to read a couple books on Harriet Tubman, who I just think the world of. Unbelievable. Which caused me to read a number of other books about, um, around slavery, which caused me to eventually read a book that I would never have read by Gilbert King on a guy named Thurgood Marshall, because I, you know, Supreme Court Justice. But it was called Thurgood Marshall and the Groveland Boys and the Dawn of New America, and I read that and my heart just broke. And then on break, I read a, a book by Tanahisi Coates called Between the World and Me. And I began to experience the pain that our black brothers and sisters for years have experienced. And it's changing me. It's changing me more rapidly than if I never did any of those things. And... and and I just, want, I just want to encourage you. 
Be willing. This is, this is not going to be, a, you know, we're not going to walk out of some earth-shattering thing, but would you know your heart? Are you willing to humbly end with hunger? Know your heart. Begin to watch, your, watch what you're saying. Watch the tone of how you say things. Will, will you make someone human by, by saying, you know what? I just, I can't stand this group of people or what they represent. Can you, can you get close to someone and begin to see them not as a label, but as a person. And then are you willing to maybe take some time to just go, what is their pain? Man, if my God would incarnate himself to come into this world of us, with all of our rebellion and our disdain for authority and our hatred of, of one another and our fear of foreigners, everything, he would come in and he would make himself known to us and take on our pain. I just challenge you to think about those things. We're going to take communion, and and communion is this incredible gift of God where he comes and he makes himself known. And and, and what you may not realize, I'm going to ask Phil and the team to come forward, is there's a chiastic structure set up to the whole Bible. Did you know that? It actually starts with creation, the fall, and sin. It then moves to God choosing a people and a nation. And the middle point is Christ, who has come, died, and this meal is for us to remember that we need him and his grace in this life We need his forgiveness for our own sin and the evil in our own hearts. And because of what he has done, if we accept that, he then takes, Jesus as this midpoint in history comes and he takes individuals, but then he takes a person, a people of God called the church. Right? Creation, fall, sin, the nation, people Israel, Jesus. Individuals, disciples, a nation of church. And then there's judgment of sin. We will all face God someday. And those who have received Christ and his grace stand in his mercy. And there's judgment, and guess what's at the end? A recreation, a new creation. Isn't that kind of cool? That's how the Bible's set up, chiastically. You can now remember it and tell the story to someone. And that's what communion's about. It's that center point. And it's this, folks, that centers our life on our God. It is not about your works. If you're coming in here and you're feeling like, man, I've really screwed up and I shouldn't even... You know what? This is the time to examine yourself and get, get real with God because God loves you. He loves real people. And not hide and just say, God, I blew it. And he goes, you know what? I understand that. And that's why I gave you the cross. This should be a centering point when we take communion on your relationship with Jesus so that the implications and all that's entailed in the gospel can become true and real in your life. Let's pray. Father, we are here to take these elements which are symbols of your love for us. Your body which has received our punishment, Jesus your blood, which is your life poured out for us, Jesus. We live just like we eat food 
We have bread and water to sustain us. We live because we eat. Upon your flesh and blood, we actually eat and take into our system spiritually the nourishment of your grace and your mercy for our sin. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.